My brother, a couple of years ago, he got seconded from his work where he worked in London. Um, he got seconded to Singapore for six months. And he found out quite quickly how you live depends on where you live. <laughs> so in, in, a, in a England, for his lunch when he's in, in London, if he went out and ate his sandwiches and then decided to throw the crust to the pigeons, you know, that would be reasonably, no one would raise an eyebrow about it, would they? Feeding the pigeons something or not so good for them, others, whatever. But no one cares. In Singapore, if you were to feed the pigeons, you get a $500 fine. Important to know where you live. That's just different. If maybe on that same lunch break, he, he wandered over to the uh, newsagent and bought a couple of packs of um, chewing gum. Again, no one's going to raise an eyebrow. Chewing gum, some people like it, some people don't. Singapore, if you're caught with uh, two, more than two packs of chewing gum, you can go to prison for two years. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently that's the case. Chewing gum is not so seen as so good. So where you live does depend how you live in different ways. And uh, as we're looking through the story of Daniel, we're finding that the people of God in the Old Testament found out this principle as well. Where How we live depends upon where we live and where we live affects how we live. And uh, Jonathan kicked off the, the series last week and we looked at Daniel and his friends had been transported from Israel into Babylon. And they're finding out this principle right there. Very different and it affects how they live. And actually, it's not so much just to do, to, yeah, to do with uh, the laws in Babylon, different to Israel. It's to do with actually the whole cultural atmosphere of Babylon uh, being totally different. Because... Let's face it for these guys, Israel was a place that everything was centered upon the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, okay? The assumption be talking to anybody, we have very similar value system and a very similar religious belief system. That would have been the case in Israel. And suddenly from Israel taken to Babylon, it's completely different. <laughs> now obviously the Babylonians don't share the Israelite beliefs. Obviously, that, that goes without saying. But more than that, Babylon is not neutral to the Israelites' beliefs either. It's not a kind of, here's our truth, tell me yours sort of culture in Babylon. No, no. Babylon is, is, is actively hostile towards Jewish beliefs and will seek, and does this to all beliefs around them, will seek to crush opposing beliefs by any means necessary. Okay? That's how Babylon operates. I remember growing up at a time when people in our country were coming to terms with a similar shift of things. I um, don't know if anyone, I'm kind of 40 now and like in the 80s growing up. And I clocked, to, for people a bit older, seemed a little bit confused about what was going on in our country. And they were harking back almost to a time, and this would have been the case much before then, I suppose, that it would be very fair to have said that England was a Christian nation. Okay, I'm not saying that that was great. I'm just saying that that would have been a fair phrase to use. There was a, there was a default religion, Christianity, okay, and a, and a kind of uh, accepted values base. So things like uh, on a day like today, 50 years ago, you wouldn't have been able to get your shopping today. I don't know, again, if people can remember this. Or I need to just pop out and get this. Not today, you can't. Why? Because the Sunday trading laws. Why? Because of the Ten Commandments. The, the legal system even was based around the Bible. Britain was a Christian nation uh, in many ways. But in kind of like second half of last century, Christians started thinking, wait a minute. I don't think that's the case anymore. It's like we were living in Israel and now we're living somewhere else. Where is it? Where do we live? And actually for many, uh, as, as I was growing up and going into my teens, it seemed that this, the, the, the idea was we're living in this different place. It's not a Christian country anymore, but it, it's a country that has a problem with its knowledge of Christianity. People have sort of forgotten what Christianity is. 
They don't know the story so much and they think it's a load of rules. So the main thing we can do is we can tell them what it is. We can say it's not a religion of rules. It's, it's, it's different to that. It's, a, it's grace. It's relationship with God. All that stuff. Knowledge is the key problem here. And there's an openness to discuss that. Okay? There's an openness to debate. There's an openness to discuss. So it's not what it was before, but that's the kind of place that we're in. And it was understood uh, that you might get ridiculed for being a Christian, and uh, you might get laughed at, or you'd, get, you'd probably get patronized in some way. But if you were cool with that, if you were willing to put up with that, actually that was okay. And, and the assumption was that was the sort of place uh, that we found ourselves living in as Christians. And I think uh, in the 90s and in the early noughties, that was a pretty good description, actually, of, of the culture in many ways. And in some ways, culture doesn't work. It's not the same everywhere. That still is the case now, in, in some ways. However, as a general picture of our culture, that is no longer uh, the case. I think in the last 10 years or so, there's been a shift, and there's a significant sense now in which our culture, we'd misunderstood where we were, or it's changed where we are. We were in Israel, Christian nation. Now we're not in this open place. We're in Babylon. We're in a place that is actively hostile to what we believe and to our value system. And that's not just pressure brought on us by ridicule. That's That's still... Happens. I hope we're okay with that. People laughing at us. That's, that's, <laughs> that's okay. I hope we've grown through that. That's, that's fine. People can laugh at us. But it's not just that the issue now. There are other means potentially of coercion that are there. best way I've heard this put is uh, if you're a Christian over 30 here, do you remember when uh, people talked to Christians as do-gooders? Do you remember that? Remember that? I heard it explained recently. I think this is a really helpful way to look at it. Is uh, That's not the case now. We're no longer the do-gooders. We're the do-badders. And that's a massive shift. We've changed. We've moved from one place to a different place. It's very much like uh, we're living in Babylon, like Daniel and his friends were. And this time, what we're going to do is we go through this book, the book of Daniel. We're going to be asking the question, how do we live faithfully to God as exiles in a culture that is hostile to what we believe? Jonathan kicked us off last week with Daniel 1, and I'm going to continue today. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go for anything maverick. We're going to Daniel 2, okay? <laughs> and uh, the words are not going to appear behind me up there because I'm going to tell you a story. And you're more than welcome to turn to Daniel 2 in your Bibles to, to follow along and check I'm not making anything up as we go along. Please feel free. Uh, but I'm going to just read the story. I'm going to uh, interject every now and again to kind of explain a few things and then just at the end, very briefly, pull a couple of strands together because this is a great story, guys. This is a really good one and I want us to get into it, okay? So... If you want to get your Bibles out, that's fine. Otherwise, get into story mode, whatever that looks like for you, as long as it doesn't mean sleeping. I don't mind. Okay, this is how it it goes. Daniel 2. One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. I'm not going to stop every verse. That would be annoying, but I do need to give us context. Nebuchadnezzar, who's this guy? Well, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and he's the guy who masterminded the sacking of Jerusalem, the stealing of all the stuff from the temple, the kidnapping of Daniel and his friends. He's that guy, okay? He's in charge in Babylon. Or so it seems, anyway. Already in Daniel chapter 1, the author has just raise this question about how much Nebuchadnezzar is really in, in charge of things. So right in the very first verse of the book, the author says, yeah, Nebuchadnezzar uh, invaded and attacked Israel, uh, Jerusalem. And then the, the writer says this, verse 2, the Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. The Lord gave him victory and the Lord permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. 
So Nebuchadnezzar, who is he? He looks like he's the guy in charge. But the author's already saying, maybe that's not the full story. And that's the question this chapter is going to be about. And in a sense, the rest of this book, actually, is how much, to what extent is Nebuchadnezzar really in charge of Babylon? Or to put it another way, to what extent is God really in charge in Babylon? Does God rule in Babylon? That's the question that, this, that we're going to see as we go through the story. Right. Back to the story. He's had this dream. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. Just hold that point. You did hear that, right? They took, got him to tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. That the astrologers weren't listening properly, and they said, Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king! Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I am serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, <laughs> see what he's doing? Just read my mind, please. That's what I'd like you to do. Uh, reasonable request, of course. And if you can't do that, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. So far, so Babylon, I think, as we go here. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. Come on, what's wrong with you people? They said again, what was that? Sorry. Please, your majesty, tell us the dream and we will tell you what it means. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I am serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. The astrologers replied to the king, No one on earth can tell the king his dream, and no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. Let's pause there for a minute, and let's just clock that last... First, that's an interesting one they said, isn't it? Well, interesting way to end. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. The astrologers are obviously utterly despairing. It's a crazy request of them all, okay? But the author is also giving us a wink by putting this in here. He's winking at us. He's saying, there's another question that we're going to ask in this chapter I'm going to be looking at. It's not just, does God rule here? We've asked that question, but I want to also ask, does God live here? And by that, I think it means not, not, not live in a house or something, but does God act? Does God get involved in Babylon? Because that's a kind of different question, uh, isn't it? It's not the same to rule over a place as to live in a place. It's not the same to say that God's in charge or sovereign as is saying he's actually going to get involved here. It's another thing he's going to throw up here. The Babylonians think these two questions are settled. By the way, we've got that. Who's the king? Who's in charge? Well, it's that guy who's threatening to cut off our heads for not reading his mind. He's in charge. Nebuchadnezzar's in charge. And do, 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 what else do you know? Well, the gods, they might be out there somewhere, but they don't, they don't do anything. They don't, they don't get involved here. This is on us. And uh, what the author's going to do is tell us right at the start, he's going to question these two assumptions uh, as we go on here. I'm not going to apply too much as we go through but I've got to apply here because I just want to bring us up to speed here in this great story um, this is so applicable to us because I think uh, we ask these questions hugely and have asked them more and more as the culture seems to have shifted underneath us and even as Christians I think we would fall into a very similar mindset to the Babylonian enchanters here 
I don't know if, don't know if you've noticed that. I don't know if you've noticed that in your own mind. But you kind of, you kind of look around you and you, you see what's going on. And you're saying, well, I mean, I know I can sing the songs. I know I see it in the religion I've followed since I was young. But God doesn't rule here. How could God rule here? I mean, look around us. Look what's happening. How could God be sovereign over this? It looks like those, that those political powers rule here. That's what it looks like. Or even more, it looks like those corporations, they seem to have a lot of clout here. They rule here. Maybe actually you just say, I tell you what, who rules here? Chaos rules here. God doesn't rule here. And I think as well, when it comes to things like, does God live here anymore? I think we can have exactly the same thing. I, I mean, I don't know if you ever do this, but you look back at stories in history and say, when, when Britain was a Christian nation, these stories, great revivals and this happening, and, and God answered prayers and healed loads of people, and, and loads of people would like fall to their knees in repentance, and, and God stood with his church. And yeah, he, he seemed to do that thing when it was kind of Israel. But he doesn't, he doesn't live among people now. We're in Babylon. And we, say, we come to the same conclusions. And so for us, this is incredibly relevant to us to see how this will pan out, because those are exactly the questions they're asking here. So let's go back to the story. The astrologers have sort of said, come on, see reason, this is impossible. The king was furious when he heard this. Of course he was. And he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree, men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. Daniel and his friends... Brought in now into the story. We haven't heard from them yet. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They have other names as it goes on. Don't let it confuse you. Okay, I'll point that out. Uh, but they're brought in now, and they're in trouble because they're wise men in the land. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Ariok, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Ariok told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Then Daniel went home and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're their original names, uh, what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night, the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, Praise the name of God forever and ever, for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Here's the turning point of the whole story, the crux of the story. God tells him the dream. Amazingly, God tells him the dream. And then you've got this incredible prayer of thanks and praise uh, given to us from Daniel here. Let's just reflect again on this for a minute. The, the, that praise, I don't know if you spotted the key word that kept coming through. Just, just ask you, what was the word that he kept thanking God for in the, in the, uh, in the, the thanks prayer? Uh, anyone spot it? Wisdom, yes, thanks to his wisdom. He says it over and over again. You're a God of wisdom. You give your people wisdom. You have given me wisdom. That's what he's thanking God for. And obviously the wisdom that he's, uh, that he's thanking God for is, is the fact that God has revealed to him supernaturally this dream. Okay, But I think there's a little bit more to it than that. Wisdom's a very important word in, in this book. And we'll see this as, as time goes on. 
But part of the wisdom uh, Daniel's clear that God's given him is God's given, that God's given him an understanding of reality that's at odds with the wisdom of the other wise men as well. That's what we often think of as wisdom, don't we? It's kind of knowing, not just knowing stuff, but understanding how the world really works. And he's thanking God that he's done that. And uh, he un- his understanding is completely different to the understanding that we saw a minute ago from the Babylonians, because he's very clear on two things in this prayer. First of all, he's very clear on Nebuchadnezzar is not in charge of Babylon. God is. Verse 21, this brilliant bit of the, uh, the prayer, this is kind of a summary of the whole book of Daniel in some ways. God controls the course of world events. Wow. Just so God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets them up. We'll come back to that in a couple of chapters because we definitely get onto that bit. And the, so the, he's clear on that one, who rules. But also while the Babylonian wise men had concluded that gods don't live among the people anymore, now he saw things very, very differently to that. He understood, no, God is active. He's very active even in Babylon. Notice that God's been working all the way through the story. God gave the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king. It's not just that God speaks to his people in Babylon. No, he's doing all sorts of stuff. He's at work everywhere. He gives the dream, and then he supernaturally gives this uh, revelation. He is very active in Babylon. Before we turn to the story, though, I just want to just flag something. I'm not going to, be able to talk much about this today, but it's going to come every single talk, I think, as we go through. I just want to flag up here because it is here. Um, question. Again, question to the floor, okay, uh, just to prepare you for that. Not rhetorical. Got it? Okay. Hands need to go up in a minute. Uh, okay. Um, how did he get this revelation? Let's talk to me through. How did it come to him? It's a dream. Elliot, I heard it. There was no hand, but that was great. Very good. It came in a dream, didn't it? But let's think this through. How did it happen? Was it that he, uh, it, it gets to the end of the day, he's been told he's going to die, and he's very worried, and so he takes a couple of sleeping pills because he can't get to sleep, and then just falls asleep, and then God just goes, right, you're worried, here's the, uh, here's the revelation. Is that what happens? Is there anything else going on here? What is in the lead-up to the revelation? Ben. You know what? The headmaster here didn't put his hand up, but you did, and I, I respect that, Ben. <laughs> you both got it right though. Uh, he asks, I mean, it, it says this, th- thanks, thanks for playing along with me guys, I like the interaction, it's all good. Okay, he, he asks, he says, it, verse 18, he, urged, he went to see Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and he urged them to ask the king, God of heaven to show them his mercy. He, he prays. Listen, as, as we're going to see today and in, in the future, understanding how the world works and understanding a, a fair view of reality is very, very helpful in Babylon. Wisdom is necessary if we're going to remain faithful in Babylon. However, understanding stuff is not going to be all that we need. On its own, it's not going to see us through. In Babylon, you have to pray. You have to pray. As we go in this series, uh, we'll see Daniel's incredible wisdom. And we'll see his unswerving faithfulness. And we'll see actually that even in Babylon, this guy has an influence for God and he's honoured. And you might be saying, okay then, I'm looking forward to the secret. It's, it's a new day for us. What's the magic new thing? It's going to be really outside the box, this one, I know it, that's going to get us through at this time, that's going to help the church this time. Well, if you're looking for something novel, I'm really sorry you're not going to find it. Because what's Daniel's secret? You see, in almost every chapter, it is a living and intimate relationship with God built around a commitment to praying, reading his Bible, and fasting. See, in every chapter, it's this, a commitment to the spiritual disciplines. I don't know how you call that, your devotional life, your quiet times, whatever you'd, you'd call that. In Babylon, 
If you don't pray, you die. That's how it goes. If they'd not prayed here, I doubt they'd have got a revelation. They would have died physically. They would have been pulled limb from limb by horses. Pretty unpleasant. I think for us, uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that's going to happen to us. I'm not saying that that's on the agenda anytime soon. I don't think anyone's comment, uh, commenting going down that line. But you know what? The same thing still stands. If we don't pray, we'll die. Spiritually, we'll die. Might be a slow death. Might be just slowly, month after month, you just go a bit, a bit cooler on that passion that you once had for God. That faith you once very committed to, just slowly, just eaten away bit by bit until you suddenly realize, oh, it's gone. It's dead. I'll say what my family's doing. One of the things we've been wrestling with a lot in 2018 was the number of friends that we know who it was active, it was living, they loved Jesus, they followed him and who now are like, I don't, I don't believe any of that anymore. What happened? How did that happen? Well, Babylon swallowed them up. That's what happened. And a lot of it is because things, simple things like this, they weren't prioritizing quiet time with God. If we, in Babylon, if you don't pray, you die. And uh, we're going to come back to this again. again this is, I'm not going to mention this again today, but please flag this up and please be thinking about this because I know that different people have different kind of takes on that. Ah, oh, here we go. We're going to hear this again. And it's important. It's always important. But you know what? The stakes are higher in Babylon, guys. It's not going to be a talk of, you must pray to feel like a good Christian. Okay? It's like, it's guilt trip. You know, a guilt trip. Take guilt and grace, very important, out of the equation. It's about whether we survive on the ground. That's how it works in Babylon. And we're going to come back to that again and again uh, in this passage. More on that in coming weeks. Okay, let's go back to the story. Then Daniel went in to see Arioch. Remember, he's got the dream. It's a turning point in the story. Whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, again the two-name thing going on, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, there are no wise men, enchanters, magicians or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. A little bit of a risky start from Daniel here, but he quickly goes on. But there is a God in heaven. He's in heaven, but he lives on earth who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I'll tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it's not because I am wiser than anyone else that I know the secrets of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. Are we ready? It's the dream that got all of this trouble kicked off. It's, Nebuchadnezzar knows what it is. Daniel knows what it is, but we haven't got a clue. But it's all about to be revealed. Okay, you ready for the dream? It's quite crazy, but honestly, as the series goes on, it's the least crazy dream. There are some crazy dreams here, but let's go with this one. This is, we've been, it's a gateway dream in that sort of sense. Um, <laughs> where am I? Okay. In your vision, uh, your majesty saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut out from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. 
Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. I imagine this like awkward pause at this point as he kind of looks over. He's got no idea at this point whether it's going to work, is it? It's like, then Nebuchadnezzar says, good try, but actually I was on my way to school and I had no trousers on. Off with his head, okay? Is that what's going to happen? Dramatic pause. Now we will tell the king what it means. Nebuchadnezzar seems happy. He's got it right. He's nailed it. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, and strength. Can you see the confidence growing here? He's really going for it. You are not the king. God gave you all this stuff. This is how he goes on. He, God, has made you ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, Another kingdom, inferior to yours, will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided like iron mixed with clay. It will have some of the strength of iron... But while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. Very specific. But they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly your God is the greatest of gods. The Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. There we have it, Daniel chapter 2. It was a good story, isn't it? It's a great story. I know many of us would know that story before. Some of us may not, but it's a great story. And so to finish, just really briefly, uh, we've seen most of the strands already. I just want to pull the strands together as we kind of close. And I want to do it by focusing in on this dream. Because it appears from Nebuchadnezzar's response that he, for him, Daniel's interpretation was as clear as day. (laughs) Um, If you're like me, I'd like an interpretation of the interpretation. That would be helpful, okay? And so we'll do a little bit, broad brushstrokes, let's do that. Um, Because there's no way, I just thought, I think it was Peter's looking at his what? We're never going to get through the intermarriages and that stuff. We're not going into the details here. Don't worry, you still will have your lunch. Okay? But broad brushstrokes is pretty straightforward here. Because this dream, essentially, the message of the dream is the same as the message of Daniel's prayer of praise that we saw earlier in the chapter. Remember Daniel said this, he said, God controls the course of world events. He removes kings and he sets up other kings. That is what this dream means. That's what it's about. 
And the dream finally and categorically addresses the question of who really is in charge in Babylon. Let's go, let's go to, let's just think briefly about the individual bits. You've got this statue that has different bits of its body and different metals involved. And those different metals and different bits of the body represent different kingdoms of the world, uh, quite intimidating looking kingdoms at different times in history. You've got Babylon at the beginning. People argue about the other things. It's, it's probably uh, kind of Persia, uh, Greece, Syria. That's what people think. And they would match a lot of the characteristics, those kingdoms that came after. But those, the identification doesn't matter too much. The point is that these empires are all pretty impressive, and in their time, they look like they are the ones calling the shots. And take the image as well. It's not just different bits. It's, it comes together into a statue, doesn't it? A particular form. And, and the statue, if you want, represents human power in all its guises uh, over time. And so different, it could be different human empires, different kingdoms, different dynasties, different corporations, different philosophies, different ideologies. Just the statue, I think we could see, is a picture of human power. But however human power seems, this dream is saying, in whatever form it takes, it is ultimately an illusion because there is another power. It's a mountain. <laughs> the dream's going along. You've got a, there's a statue with some metal, and then there's a mountain. You're like, what? What's a mountain got to do with a statue? It might be, there's a chicken. Like, is this a weird dream? Mountains and statues are completely different images. But that's the point. It's a totally different type of kingdom. It's not another statue. It's not another thing of bronze. It's a mountain. And out of that mountain comes a stone. It's a different kingdom. And most commentators would say that the mountain quite clearly represents Mount Zion in Jerusalem. If you read throughout the Bible, particularly the poetic stuff in the Bible, Mount Zion is the symbolic place where God rules. It represents God's reign. And so this stone that's cut out of the mountain is an extension of that rule, not just over Zion, not just over Jerusalem, not just over Israel, in fact, not just over Babylon, but over what? Over all the kingdoms of the earth and over all of human power. It destroys the entire statue, leaves it blowing in the wind. We can be a little more specific than that on this stone, you know. We can go in a little bit more detail. About 600 years after the events relayed here, uh, a man, a religious teacher, walked around in Israel. I think you can probably guess his name. Jesus of Nazareth, okay? And his message was basically this. I am here to bring the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And that's a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And that kingdom is a different kingdom from anything you've ever seen. Just like in the, in the dream. And the way Jesus talked to that kingdom was in very similar terms to this dream, although he used different imagery. Listen to this, Mark 4, 30 to 32. Jesus said, how can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? It is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches and birds can make nests in its shade. See, it's just the same. It's a different agricultural image. But it's exactly the same kind of kingdom. It grows, doesn't it? Elsewhere, actually, Jesus was more specific. He, Jesus is really into Daniel. You see him quoting Daniel a lot um, as he goes through and referring to it in different ways. But um, I think he goes into this image perfectly. So in, in Luke 20, uh, Jesus is having an argument with some religious figures. And uh, he's always arguing with religious figures, or they're always arguing with him. And uh, around the chapters in this bit, the key argument they're having is it's gone down to the, the real nub of things. They're saying, who are you? Jesus, who are you? And so that's the nature of the argument. Jesus responds in this, uh, in this occasion, Luke 20, 18. He says, Jesus looked at them and said, then what does this scripture mean? 
The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. What's he saying? He's saying, remember Daniel? Remember that crazy dream? Remember the stone not cut out by human hands? I'm the stone. I am the one. That's his point. He's the fulfillment of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 600 years after that thing was reported. I'm going to make a guess on this, but I reckon there's some of you who'll be like, whoa, I love it when things all tied together in the Bible. That's great, fantastic, magnificent. There'll be others of you of a more skeptical bent who you might not be a Christian here today, uh, or you could be a Christian, but you might still have those, those sort of questions. And you say, yeah, it's a good link, but it doesn't really prove anything, does it? Because this is what religious celebrities have been doing since day one. Nothing adds to your credibility more than putting yourself into an ancient prophecy. <laughs> Lots of people try this stuff, and they've always tried this stuff. Now, I understand the objection. I think we should always ask questions like that when we come to, to different uh, people who make claims of such a, a weight. But what is particularly interesting for me is how this plays out from the point that Jesus says this stuff. I mean, at that point, you could say, yeah, well, Jesus, it's nice. It's a nice link, but come on, what's happened? Well, what's happened since? Jesus is... Movement started small, that was true, just like the little stone or the little seed. And uh, when he died, Jesus had 120 followers. But uh, soon after that, it started gaining a bit of momentum as 120 followers started running around saying this strange message that said, Jesus, you know he died, the one you saw die on the hill, on the cross, he's alive again. He, he came back to life, he's now gone back to heaven, and you can have new life if you follow him. And so within a couple of months, there were a few thousand uh, followers in Jerusalem, the place where Jesus died. Fifty years later, you look at the historical records, you can see that all around Europe and Asia, these little communities of Jesus' followers keep popping up. Okay, this is interesting. The little stone is looking more like a, a rock. Now, the Roman Empire, uh, acting just like the empires uh, in this chapter, whether it's alluded to here or not, uh, decides, I'm not, we're not putting up with competition. Uh, we'll get rid of this. We're going to crush this. And so what, what the Roman Empire did was they socially marginalized Christians and they tortured Christians and they murdered Christians. They executed them. But what they found was that they were coming up against a force that they just couldn't compete with. Got to remember, the Roman Empire was the, the most powerful empire that had ever been. But it came up against Christianity and it couldn't get through. Incredibly, more than that, about 350 years after Jesus' death, the Roman Empire, who threw themselves onto the rock of the kingdom of God, found themselves completely smashed to pieces. About 350 AD, Rome converted from paganism to Christianity. You can look in all the history books, you can see what happened. And while there may have been a degree of uh, political maneuvering in that task, it wasn't just that. The reality was, historians and sociologists tell us, is they were responding to what was happening in Rome because so much of the population in the empire had become Christian, it was just that it was the natural thing. That's what they had to do. They'd fallen on the rock. They'd been smashed to pieces. The tiny seed that was planted in a Jewish backwater had grown so big to this massive tree, it took over the largest empire in the whole earth. That tiny rock... Just another religious teacher co-opting an old prophecy. We've seen this before. That rock, it had grown into a mountain and it had defeated Rome. Fast forward to the present day. Almost 1,700 years later, Babylonian Empire is no more. 
Some of you are like, this is boring. This is ancient history. I don't care about this. Yep, too true. No more. The Persian Empire is no more. The Greek Empire is no more. The Roman Empire is no more. But on the planet today, according to 2015, there are 2.3 billion Christians, about a third of the world's population, which is just about the highest percentage of the world's population that have ever been Christian. How do you see? This isn't just some triumphalistic religious story to keep the faithful encouraged in tough times. This chapter has an incredibly accurate prediction of how human history has unfolded in the last two and a half thousand years. And I, I don't think we should get too caught on the details of which kingdoms, which and that. If we do that, sometimes we can miss the bigger picture. That's reasonably remarkable. That's a taste of God, a drop of God for us to say, look, I want to show you in times like yours, I want to give you evidence for this stuff. Hold on to these things. So let's conclude then with our questions. We've been asking today, and the Jews at the time of the Babylonian exile are asking, does God rule in Babylon? Does God act in Babylon? And the message of Daniel 2 is to go way beyond those questions. The story says, you know what? God rules in Israel. You need to be clear of that. He didn't, he didn't die when they sacked his temple. He still rules in Israel. And amazingly, he even still rules in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's only king because he put him here anyway. But more than that, he's king over all the world. He's God over all human kingdoms, over all human power throughout all of human history. For Christians like us living in exile, in what seems like an increasingly foreign, even hostile culture, we're asking these questions and these answers are here for us. To survive and thrive in exile, the first thing we need to do is get straight that whatever is happening around us, God rules and God is active in our day and age. Whatever the politicians are doing, quite apt <laughs> this week, isn't it? So I'm saying, whatever they're doing or not doing, please let's not waste our time coming up with our great opinions on this stuff. For most of us, there's nothing we can do. There is action we can take at different times. But for most of us, it's, it's just hot air. But we know this. He is in charge. Whatever's going on. Whatever's happening in world affairs. Whatever ecological disasters seem to be around the corner. God rules and God's active. And that's not the last thing we've got to say about exile. There's no doubt about that at all. We, from that point, we, we don't adopt a complacency towards these things. But from that foundation, as we'll see in the story, it helps us to build up an understanding of how we can live lives that are confident and fearless and even faithful in Babylon. I think that's an amazing thing. I want to encourage you today. We can be faithful. You'll see in this. See at the end of the story, Daniel's honored. That's, that's still the case here. Can we pray?